0: Thank you, Ben. Good evening, everyone. I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. I'm Steve. And, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to spend the weekend with you here at the Buckeye Roundup. It's been a real treat for me, and uh, it always is. And 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 you know, for me, the the real uh, blessing of being invited around uh, uh, from from time to time and from place to place is the people I get to meet and the people I get to spend time with. Make new friends here, visit with old friends, and. Uh, 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 t- so, so, really, I'll I leave here blessed, and I'll leave better than I than I arrived, and uh, so thank you. Uh, thanks, Kim, for the invitation, and Ben for being a great host. Uh, I, I got kind of excited during the uh, uh, sobriety countdown, and there's just such a wonderful mix of people here, and and uh, as, you know, Dakota came up with the shortest amount of time, and, and uh, on the one hand, I say congratulations, but really, I, I say welcome, and uh, 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 but I'm just as impressed and, and just as encouraged by the fact that uh, Becky was here to present that book at 40 plus years, and that we all fit in here somewhere in between there, and that we're all connected. We're all connected, not just at the level of the problem, but we're connected tonight at the level of the solution. That's what keeps us together. That's why I'm here tonight. I'm here because there's a solution that works in a, on which we can absolutely agree and work in brotherly and harmonious action. Brotherly and harmonious action wasn't happening a lot when I got to AA. Uh, I was a soloist, not a, you know, I wasn't making harmony with anybody. So it's a, it's a, it's a thrill to be here. For those of you that were kind of in that first year or so, I mean, I'm excited for you. I, I often think I, I may be more excited for you than you are for yourselves. You—you. You, you may be in that place that I was when I first got to AA, and uh, uh, when I was I was here uh, under duress. I was here. We seem to get to AA one of two reasons: either I've decided that I've got a problem with drinking, or somebody else decides I've got a problem with drinking. <laughs> I don't think one's any more noble than the other, to be honest with you. But I get here, and, I, and I'm so grateful. By the way, I, I'm the one that got here because somebody else decided I had the problem. And, uh, uh, but I'm so glad that I don't have to show up even understanding my problem. That's one of the things that keeps me away, that keeps me in the darkness, is I don't really know the problem I've got. Because I knew when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous that I had alcohol related problems. You know, you could, there was a, a direct relationship between many of my problems and my drinking. I had 60 UIs. I mean, I, there, there, I, had, I had paper that said I had an alcohol problem. <laughs> and I had a legal problem. But what I didn't, I had no idea that I had alcoholism when I wasn't drinking. I had no idea that on a Tuesday afternoon, stone sober, sitting at my desk with a wife that loved me and a kid that loved me and a pretty good job and, 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 and a life that looked okay from the outside looking in that I had alcohol, that the way I felt, that insecurity, that sense of loneliness, that sense of apartness, that sense what Polly talked about in in referencing Chuck C., that conscious separation from God and man, that thing that put me outside the circle that I thought you were all living in. And the thing is, I couldn't even articulate that. If you'd asked me, I couldn't have even told you how I felt. I didn't have words to articulate this feeling and a problem that I really couldn't get my arms around. So I hope to talk about that a little bit tonight. But, but, but when I was sitting in those first meetings, and even after I decided that I needed to stop drinking, and needing to stop drinking is real different than wanting to stop drinking, but I recognized I needed to stop. I'll probably, things will probably go better if I don't drink. There are people I probably won't hurt as much if I don't drink. But I thought when I finally made that decision that I need to stop drinking and I made the decision that AA is how I'm going to try to not do it, I thought that I'd be spending all my time not drinking. I thought not drinking was an actual activity in Alcoholics Anonymous, (laughs) that we will get together and not drink. I had a woman come into a, a, a meeting that I attend regularly a few months ago, and she was, she was pretty new. She was in her first couple of months, and uh, uh, she came in just, just wide-eyed, you know. It was a, a, a lunchtime meeting, and she was saying uh, she had shared earlier that, that she was going to be going to dinner a few, few days before, that she was going to be going out with her husband to dinner and was concerned about it. He still had a few drinks, and she was just concerned about being back in that atmosphere where alcohol was being served and how would she fare there. And she came back, and she was just beaming, and she said, you know, I went. And she says, there there were four women from the group in the the restaurant. And she said, I looked over at them, and they were eating and not drinking. And you could just almost see them not drinking, you know. Uh, Look at them over there not drinking. And, uh, uh uh and that's, what I th- and that's what I thought I was going to be doing. I'd be spending a lot of time that you call me and say, hey, Steve, we're going to go to the Titans Bengals game. Would you like to go? <laughs> Boys, I'd love to go, but I'm busy Sunday. I'll be home not drinking. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I heard somebody say, don't drink even if your ass falls off you. I'll be home not drinking, guarding my ass. But I'm going to be not drinking, you know, and, and, and it's going to require self restraint. And it's going to be self-sacrifice, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be boring, and it's going to be dull. But it's going to be worth it, but I'm just going to hang on and not drink. And I've got to tell you, this would be a tough place to stay not drinking. But Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't offer me just a not drinking. This doesn't give me the power to resist a drink. Alcoholics Anonymous will put me in a position of neutrality as it pertains to drink. I can take a neutral position to alcohol, daily reprieve contingent upon my spiritual condition, neither cocky nor afraid, and I can live freely in this world. I can do it in this room with you. I can do it in that restaurant where liquor's being served. I can do it in social gatherings. I can do it in a business environment. I'm free to go anywhere and do anything if I'm properly motivated and spiritually fit. That's a freedom. And I was afraid my life was going to get really small, that AA was going to be all about where I can't go, what I can't do, who I can't hang out with. Man, my life is big. I didn't know how small my life had become. I didn't know how limited my circle had become. I can't tell you how often I was trapped in my house with the blinds pulled and the door locked and the and the phone unplugged, hiding from the world. Today I can live in it. But when I was sitting there those first few meetings, those first few weeks, those first few months, I wasn't sure what was in front of me. I knew I wanted my life to change, but I was afraid of what that change would look like. And I was afraid of what you were going to ask me to do to bring about that change. But I was attracted to the men and women in Alcoholics Anonymous right away. I think it was Jimmy today who mentioned Jerry Springer, who I guess was a Cincinnati native, right? You must, you've got to be beaming with pride and,
1: well.
0: But O.A.'s like the Jerry Springer show every day, you know. without the paternity test and uh, uh... and actually sometimes with the paternity test and, uh, uh, but you're fascinating people you know you're fascinating people it, it, it's, it's, this is a fun place to hang out it is for me anyway and I'm, I'm grateful for that because I'm not very good at doing stuff I don't like very long so I'm comfortable here I enjoy this <coughs> I'm going to try to do what you asked me to do. What you already know is I'm not going to do it in any particular order. Uh, uh, I just will take a left turn and wander off anywhere, and we may or may not come back. And uh, uh, I'm not even terribly concerned about that because uh, uh, I'm leaving tomorrow. And, uh, uh, and sometimes that left turn will be divinely inspired. And sometimes it will be self-indulgent. And uh, I often don't know which is which until I've already made the turn. And, uh, uh. But I want to share with you, hopefully within the time we've got, a little bit about about. Uh, I used to say. I'm going to share myself. I'm going to tell you what I was like. I'm going to tell you what happened. And what kind of kicked me into i I'm going to tell you what's going on in my life today. But the truth is, that's not exactly what's going to happen. Because while I'm committed to being honest with you, I don't have the same commitment to accuracy. <laughs> uh, I am off, I'm often honestly mistaken. I sometimes suffer from a past that never actually happened. <laughs> because what I'm going to share with you is, is the experience, the view of my life through the prism of my alcoholism as I went through it. I'm going to share with you what it looked like and what it felt like on me, but what I know is that often other people were right there and having a different experience. <laughs> they were describing it differently. They would look back on it differently. I will tell you, a few years ago I went to a conference down in Myrtle Beach and uh, as, as Ben and I had been doing, I, and, and, and Kim and I had spoken with my uh, host a number of times on the phone that we had never met. and. Uh, but he was gonna pick me up at the airport in the baggage claim area, and I flew in and I'm in the baggage claim area and we can't find each other, we can't connect. And I'm looking all over and, and we, I've got my cell phone, I'm I'm dialing him and, and and he said, Hey, I'm I'm here, Steve, I'm over by baggage claim number six. And I said, You can't be, man. I I'm at baggage claim number six. And he said, No, I'm right here. And finally we were the two guys on the phone at baggage claim number six and uh uh <laughs> but we realized the reason we had not been able to connect is because we had both described ourselves as much more attractive than we really are. Uh, uh, Now, I share that honestly, and, and what I'm telling you is the way I see me is not always the way other people see me. Literally and figuratively. I was maybe... 15, 16 years ago, I was talking to a guy on the phone who, it, it, it wasn't even an AA thing, but, but we were going to try to connect somewhere, and I was describing myself to him. It's before I started shaving my head, but after I probably should have been. And uh, 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 I'm describing myself to him, and I said, I gave him a couple of, uh, uh, of, of, of you know, descriptions, and I said, that, and I'm balding. And I got off the phone, and my daughter, he's about 12 or 13 at the time, she went, Dad, there's no ing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I don't see me. I can't, I, I can't see. And, and often, by the way, while here we're kind of making light of it in a couple of fun, often, but I can't see I can't see the good in me. I can't sometimes see past this this self-centered fear that colors my view of me and colors my view of you and colors my view of the world. So when Chuck Chamberlain says that we get this new pair of glasses, that's what this spiritual awakening and spiritual experience is. is. It is being able to see things as they really are. It's being able to start living in the real world. It's been able to get some clarity and over time and hopefully with some continued growth to dial that prescription in to see even more clearly and more clearly. And one of those descriptions of humility in our book uh, uh, around the fifth step in the 12 and 12, it says a clear understanding of who and what I am right now, coupled with a desire to be what I could be. Look what a wonderful spot that is. See, it requires some humility for me to be here tonight with all the flaws and limitations that I have. But when I couple that, when I I couple what I'm not yet with a sincere desire to be what I could be, then I can be comfortable right now. I don't have to wait. One of the things I discover is I spent most of my time getting ready to have a good day. (laughs) You know, you're just almost there as soon as. What about when you're in the meeting? Right when you're new and you're, it's not limited to new certainly by any stretch, but especially when I was new, I'm sitting in the meeting and there's the three year guy and I go, man, I can't wait. To, you know, and he, he or she would share something, you know, and I go, man, I can't wait till I can feel like he sounds. Man, let you get the three and there's the six year guy. <laughs> Even here, I, I can't. Wait to be Becky, and uh, uh, you know it's. But but I'm 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 through waiting. I'm through waiting. Today's the day I want to have a good day. Anyway, I better drink a little bit, and uh, uh, then we'll sober up a little bit, and then we'll talk about some stuff. Uh, my sobriety date's June 30th, 1989, and uh, my home group is the Backroom Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. meets every Saturday and Sunday morning. Uh, uh, I'll be here. Somebody texted me earlier. Apparently, in a close vote, they've decided to have the meeting in my absence, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, as they do often. But I'm I'm a grateful member of that group, and uh, and and I'm I'm torn the fact that I'm gone. So it's been my home group for about 18 years, but I'm gone a lot now. And while that group serves me very well, the question is always, am I serving the group very well? And uh, uh, I'm exploring that. Of course, I've been exploring that for a number of years. I just hadn't been able to make myself change yet, but I'm, I'm looking at it. Uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, uh, with my wife, Connie, we got a daughter, Abby, who's uh, now 32. Abby was uh, five when, uh, when both Connie and I got sober. We got sober within 10 days of one another, I'm, me first, which is important to me. And. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 But there's a number of people in here who know Connie and and know that she just blew by me on the spiritual fast lane a long time ago. And uh, we're both just grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous because we gathered together at the level of the problem. And then we moved toward a solution. But it took us a while to find each other again as we sobered up. What brought us together wasn't going to keep us together. We had to navigate through several years in, in, our, in our sobriety and recovery, not to figure out if we cared about each other, but to figure out if we were compatible to figure out if, if, if we, on those levels of physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional, we're compatible. What doesn't make one of you bad and one of you, you know, good or one of you right or one of you wrong, but do we fit? Do these new sober people fit? It took a while. I can tell you, I can tell you we fit today. I can tell you we fit today. But we had to rub some rough edges off before that happened. Uh, I told you June 30th, uh, 1989 is my sobriety date. I mean, I'm going to tell you about June the 29th. That's the uh, most embarrassing thing I ever share from the podium. And it's, uh, it's because I've been here a couple of days, I've heard some of your stories. I've heard the people from up here. I've heard you chatting with each other. There's some, frankly, there's just some bad alcoholics here. and. Uh, 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 So i got to tell you, my last drink was an Amaretto on the Rocks. Yeah, I'm appropriately ashamed of that. And, uh, 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 that is not the way I would have gone down. Uh, uh, but you now know I did not know that was going to be my last drink when I took it. And the truth is, I don't know if it's my last drink. It's the last time I've had one but I can promise you I did not expect to go from that night until this between drinks and I was not I, when I took that drink I, I wasn't my wife and I had just been out to dinner with three other couples I was scheduled to go into a treatment facility on July the first of 1989 and, and scheduled as a result of a plea bargain agreement as a result of a conviction of my sixth DUI a year before. It, Finally worked out this plea bargain where I had to do some jail time, but they cut some of that jail time off if I would go to residential drug and alcohol rehabilitation. That was a mouthful for me, and and I didn't quite know what it was, but it did sound marginally better than jail, And, uh, uh, and I was scared to death about going to jail. And, uh, but I was going to go in on July the 1st, June the 29th. Uh, Connie and I went out with three other couples. It wasn't a particularly wild night. We, we came back home. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd had an Amaretta, smoked a joint, went to bed. You know, just another Friday night at the Lee household. And, uh, uh, and we spent June the 30th uh, taking uh, our then 5-year-old daughter, Abby, to uh, Chuck E. Cheese before Daddy was going away on a 28-day business trip. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I've just already probably become abundantly clear to you guys, and I'm not a tough guy, I'm not a street-smart guy, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not savvy in hardly any way. But as just a public service announcement for anybody who might not be sober yet, do not spend your first day sober at Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, It was a hellish day at Chuck E. Cheese. Because they're short and just coming at you from every angle in there. And and it's loud, it's clanging, and... uh, uh, and just as I'm gathering my emotional balance, uh, I-, I saw a six-foot mouse. And uh, uh, I said to Connie, baby, do you see the mouse? And, uh,
1: uh,
0: and you know what? We're, we're laughing and having a good time in here tonight. And, boy, and, and, and we, boy I want us to, and we deserve to. And our book says cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness, but what I know, you know, and particularly I know for you newer people that are here, man, none of this was funny while it was happening. <laughs> we weren't just cackling about this stuff at the house, you know. <laughs> no, man, this was none of this was funny. And sometimes I know that 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 when I heard. Uh, men and women share from the podium when I was newly sober in particular, it sounded like that that, that they were articulating themselves so well that it sounded to me like they knew what was going on when it was happening to them. And I can tell you I had no, life was just happening to me. My friend Bob says life is fired at point blank range. And so it wasn't like I'm having all of these intellectual thoughts about this as I'm trying to articulate it tonight. This was just whizzing by me and I was just like a ball in the pinball machine just just bouncing around, just from one problem to the next, one, one, one dilemma to the next, What's you know, things are just happening. July the 1st, uh, my friend Ricky came by to pick me up to drive me off to this treatment facility. and. So I mentioned earlier today, Connie, uh, uh, Connie, uh, you know, Connie wasn't trying to get me to stop drinking. Connie did have some ideas about she would prefer me to be drinking with her. And, you know, and, and where I drank it and, and not coming home and stuff like that was unacceptable. But not drinking was – nobody in my life, frankly, was trying to tell me to stop drinking. And and I I used the uh, uh, quote earlier today in the workshop from the employers that that talks about the line that's in there that says, when dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance (laughs) that someone could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. So the people in my life weren't telling me to quit drinking. They weren't calling me an alcoholic. They were using, in, in whatever language or however they chose to express it that day, they were calling me weak, stupid, and irresponsible. They weren't telling me to stop drinking. They were telling me to grow up, be a man, be a husband, be a father, go to work, stay at work, work at work. (laughs) Show up for life. And I wasn't able to, and I couldn't tell you why I wasn't able to, and that wasn't just because I was drunk. I couldn't show up for life sober. I was scared to death. And pretended not to be scared. And I couldn't have told you what I was afraid of. I couldn't explain. That was the isolation of the alcoholic is often that feeling of difference that we talk about. is because I don't even know how to tell you what makes me feel different than you. I don't even know how to explain that. Because it looks like you kind of know what you're doing. You know, alcohol, our book describes it in one place as a social lubricant. And I, and I can even, I, I really get that. I mean, it is literally almost like oiling up, right? And, when, and oiled up, I can move easily amongst you. I'm comfortable. I'm at ease. There's a lack of self-consciousness. Uh, but sober, I am self-conscious. I am extremely sensitive, as Polly said. I am gifted with a third eye. That sees you look at me a little sideways and build a complete backstory to that glance. <laughs> or worse, you don't look at me at all.
1: <laughs>
0: you can't make me happy. You can't respond correctly. I'm insatiable. And I don't know it. Ricky's driving me over there to the treatment center, and uh, uh, he said, "Steve, what do you think this deal's going to be like, man?" I said, "I don't know," and, and I did. not I, I had I had emotions, and, and that were just running all over the place. I was angry that I had to go. I felt like this wasn't fair. I really thought a guy like me didn't go, didn't have to go to jail, didn't have to pay these penalties. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I was scared. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, I couldn't even label a lot of the emotions, but I, I said to Ricky, I said, I'll tell you one thing, though. I, uh, I said, I'm not getting in some little circle and going, I'm Steve, I'm an alcoholic, and whining about the most intimate details of my life to a bunch of strangers. And about three weeks later, I was just telling people way more than they wanted to know about me. Uh, uh, I started making stuff up because... Uh, uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, uh, Amaretta and Chuck E. Cheese will get you no street cred in the treatment center. <laughs> no. no, you got to bring a little more game if you're going to impress them. I did. I did tell them about my bribery charge. Uh, uh, apparently, the evening that I was arrested for this most recent DUI, where I had. Actually, gone the wrong way down a down a street and 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 hit a, a Brentwood police officer in his car and so I said "Dad, get you arrested in brentwood and uh, uh, but apparently, I tried to bribe the officer now I don't, that's not really not such a bad plan in and of itself, but I tried to do it with a check and uh, uh my more street smart friends will uh, let you know that for any chance for that to be effective it's got to be a cash transaction and uh, 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 and the check itself by the way can be uh, uh, creates a paper trail of evidence uh, uh, for the court (laughs) I get out of the Ricky drops me off and I walk in Harbors of Brentwood's place just about uh, five miles from my home at the time and uh, they gave me a test immediately. You know, they call it an assessment, but it felt like a test. I did you know, and it was a little different than, than uh, uh, kind of the way a lot of the uh, uh, assessments are today, which tend to be more clinical and, and trying to reach uh, criteria for insurance. And this was more a, you know, Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if type <laughs> test. And uh, 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 amongst other things, there were 30 questions that all began with the phrase, have you ever? You already know that that is overly stringent. Uh, uh, have you ever? And they said, by the way, that meant even once and even with a really good reason. <laughs> have you ever drank in the morning? Have you ever drank alone? Have you ever had a blackout? Have you ever had a DUI? Have you ever had trouble at home because of drinking?" Have you ever had trouble at work because of drinking? 30, have you ever questions that you know just have check yes or check no to what are clearly essay questions?
1: <laughs>
0: These are questions that beg for an explanation. Now, again, we're laughing here. But I can tell you that morning, say I couldn't make myself check the box. Because they're going to assess me. They're going to draw conclusions about me based on me checking this box. And, and how can they do that if they don't understand the story, if, what if, I, if I don't explain how this happened? <laughs> and one of the problems is I think I know what they're asking. You know, Have you ever drank in the morning? You know, i got questions about the questions. <laughs> what do you mean morning? <laughs> Because, see, I think they're asking if I'm that guy that's got to reach over and grab the half pint off the nightstand at, at 4 in the morning and take a pull just to stop the shakes and get to the bathroom. And, and, and I, well, I've done that a few times. Not so often I'm checking it on this test. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, no. But what if, what if I'm out at uh, 2 a.m. at last call someplace at a very nice establishment? Is that morning drinking? And if I just check yes, you know, you might room me with the 4 a.m. half-pint guy. You might think I've got that kind of alcoholism. Let me explain myself to you. Have you ever drank alone? Yeah, but they left. I mean that ever happened, all of a sudden, whoa, where did everybody go? Because, <laughs> see, I think I know what they're asking. I think they're asking if I'm that guy that's got to go home, that is, that's got to pull those shades and lock that door and unplug that phone and turn the lights down and drink in isolation. And as I already said, I've done that a few times, but not so often I'm checking it on this test. <laughs> And I'm a blackout drinker. Now, then you don't have to be a blackout drinker to be an alcoholic, and I didn't have to drink much to blackout, but I'm a blackout drinker. I love what the comedian Dave Tell says. He says he's a blackout drinker. As he likes to call it time travel. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I get that, right? You just go, whoa, how did I get here in the future, and what has been going on? <laughs> and if you're like me, you don't ask direct questions to get those answers. You, you read people's faces. You know, how, ooh, and how did it go? Was I just kind of cute last night, or did it go way <laughs> off in the weeds, you know? And then you got that couple of buddies that you call and go, man, tell me, what, how'd it go? And go? Oh, Steve, man, even you don't want to know, brother. <laughs> now, the truth is, The men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous let me uh, see very quickly that how I answer the questions on that test is not what makes me alcoholic. Those are the types of questions that will expose alcoholism. They may shine a light on it. They may put a red flag on it, but they, they are not what make me alcoholic. Those are some of the things that happen because I'm alcoholic. And if all of us took that test, different ones of us would answer some of the questions differently. But those are part and parcel of my alcoholism. But what makes me alcoholic, at least as I got to AA and finally could see and honestly take a look and lay my life experience over a description of alcoholism, it is in our book where it says that if when I honestly want to, I find I can't stop entirely, or, which must mean if either of these is true, or if when drinking I have little control of the amount I take. If so, you're probably alcoholic. And when I got, so that's what my drinking looked like. I couldn't stop entirely. They said entirely means to stop and never start again. So I've stopped entirely since June 30th of 1989. But back then, I had lots of times before I got to AA where I tried to have self-imposed periods of sobriety. Well, it was not forever, Typically. But it was going to be for a week or a month or until five or until she wasn't mad or, you know, I'm going to wait. I'm waiting to drink. I'm a guy that won't drink for a week so he can drink. The fact that I didn't drink for a week proves I cannot drink, so why don't we drink? (laughs) Do you ever find the people who say they can take it or leave it always take it? (laughs) I had uh, I grew up in Smyrna, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. Middle-class family. Uh, I got uh, older sister, older brother, and a younger sister. My mom and dad were together, nobody was knocking anybody around. There, there was no, there's no circumstantial reason for my alcoholism. Now there was some heavy drinking in my family, and and but but I will tell you that alcohol. I wasn't influenced by alcohol in my in my younger years i didn't drink until i was out of high school a freshman in college i uh while my mom and dad drank it wasn't something that i noticed i did not something I, I i was particularly excited by or frightened by uh they were just you know they would have that drink and and i would know when they went out with friends and come back later and you could tell when they were tipsy and usually that was just kind of fun you know my dad would come get me out of bed sometimes to come out and perform some little ditty for the, you know, guest he brought home. And, you know, here I am 60 years later still doing it. And, uh, uh, uh but, but I, what I'm saying is it wasn't, I wasn't like, oh, oh, that looks great or, oh, I'll, I'll never do that. It just it didn't fit into my thinking that much. I decided not to drink when I was in high school because I was playing sports and stuff. And it's just where I, where I was landing. And our book says if a mere code of morals or philosophy of living were sufficient, many of us would have recovered long ago. And I'll tell you that, I, that my code of morals and my philosophy of living were sufficient. Right up to the moment, they were no longer sufficient. I mean, they were sufficient. It wasn't hard for me not to drink in high school. And I was, not, I was hanging out with the cool kids, I mean, if you will. I mean, I was, I was out where the action was, and I was just okay not doing it. And then... As uh, a freshman in college at, at MTSU, a couple of buddies came by one night to pick me up. We're driving back over to uh, back to our high school. Now, there's a, I think a lot of information in there. First of all, you guys can get me. We're going back to my high school, so that's the level of maturity I've got. Right, we're we we are in college, but but to have any shot at all, we got to go back to the high school. <laughs> And on the way, I'm sitting in the back seat of a 1968 Canary Yellow Volkswagen Bug. And uh, my friend Doug owned and my buddy Mike uh, handed back a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine. You know, I heard that, and that bothers me. <laughs> this AA's the damnedest place I've ever been. We will brag about robbing banks and convenience stores and I got four wives in three states. Ooh, but I didn't drink the Boone's Farm. Uh, I know so far this has been an impressive drunk-a-log. Uh, uh Amaretta Boone's Farm, and uh, anyway, they passed that around, and that's probably why I could get it down because it was sweet. And, and uh, uh, somewhere along the way, I had a transformation. And the experience I had, and, and, and many alcoholics describe their own moment, but it clearly was one for me. All of a sudden, I could not wait to get where we were going because I thought you couldn't wait to see me when we got there. <laughs> and, again, that social lubricant had happened, and, and, I, and I was anxious to be in a crowd. I was anxious to be seen. I was anxious to be amongst you. And... Uh, um, and, and so I, th- I, I thought that was great, and I had a wonderful time, and I blacked out. I, like I said, I'm a blackout drinker, so, you know, I, I came, woke up the next day. I was still living at home. That's also some more information uh, uh, about me in there, even though I'm a freshman in college. I wake up the next day, my clothes are neatly folded next to my bed. I did not do that, so clearly <laughs> Mama's still putting me to bed. And. Uh, uh, um, And I don't know whether I was alcoholic just before I took that drink in that Volkswagen, and I don't know if I was alcoholic just after I took that drink in that Volkswagen, and I don't know at what point I became alcoholic. I've got a theory, but uh, uh, the reason I don't know whether I was alcoholic, because I don't know if I was drinking alcoholically or not, because I was drinking so enthusiastically. And it is impossible to tell if you can stop drinking entirely if you do not try. And it is impossible to tell if you can moderate your drinking if you do not try. And in, in, uh, uh, in our book, it says that the doctors, that, that, uh, uh, that many of us believe we could have stopped drinking early in our drinking careers though we have no way of proving it. And the reason they had no way of proving it is because they didn't try either. We don't, why would I not do that again? Why would I not indulge in that thing which had just brought me such freedom and such pleasure? And I began to have negative consequences right away. But small price to pay at that point for what i was getting i got late to school I'm, I'm i'm wrecking cars these are not the terrible wrecks at first they're i'm just like hip stuff you know i hit your car in the parking lot i i'm that guy okay i'm the, uh, 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 uh uh and i was and i didn't leave a note and uh, uh uh and i'm embarrassing myself you know and i'm just doing that that crap and i will tell you before i go any further we tell our stories and, and, and we tend to frame them around these big events, and, and, and that's useful and helpful, and I've got a couple of more dramatic stories I may get to. But the truth is, on me and on many of us, alcoholism's just a tacky, tawdry little thing. It's just, it's just day by day, little stuff, brick by brick, breaking up the relationships betraying trust of the people I love the most, telling lies. It's not all the crash and burn stories. It's just me living this tacky little life and knowing it and not being able to look that guy in the mirror much longer. But anyway, my drinking went on like that. I began to have those consequences. I, uh, uh, I moved to Florida uh, uh, in the in the early 70s, I was 23 years old, and uh, uh, I'd had a couple of DUIs by now, and, and, uh, but I went to work for some guys. They gave me a company car, being unfamiliar with my drinking history, and uh, uh, it was a really nice car for a guy my age. It was kind of a grown-up car. I mean, it wasn't a sports car, but it was a four-door sedan, but it was really kind of a cool car, and uh, I just been down there a couple of months, and I, uh, with some newfound friends, I'm over watching Monday Night Football at this guy's apartment, and, and we're drinking heavily and accessorizing that with some other things, and uh, uh, I left at halftime to go back to the little garage apartment I was living in, and I go down this little uh, 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 residential street way too fast, and I uh, used to say so I couldn't navigate this, this horseshoe turn. I've since been back to the scene of the accident, and it's about a ten-degree uh, move. But uh, 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 nonetheless, uh, and so I so I, I hit I hit a tree. Man, I hit it hard, and and it caved in the uh, the whole passenger side of the car, and it broke out the front windshield and the back windshield, and, and the top of the car was knocked down, and and and. and I'm sitting there, I was shaken up, but not badly hurt, and, and the thought that comes to me is, I got to get out of here, because if the police come, I'm going to get this DUI, I'm going to lose this job, there's just going to be a big mess to clean up, you know, going to be a lot of, of, of uh, baggage with this, so I put the car in reverse, and amazingly, it backed away from the tree, and I'm trying to get back over to my buddy's house so we can put a plan together, I know, I know I'm in a room full of people know something about a plan. And, uh, uh, and the car's driving almost sideways. The frame is bent so badly. And glass is blowing in. And people are looking at me. And it's shaking. And, and I'm just like, just let me get over there. And I, I finally got over there. And, and, and me, Larry, Curly, and Mo put a, put a plan together. And uh, uh, the plan was that we drink a couple of cups of coffee, which would render us sober. Uh, they would get back in the car with me, and we would drive the car back over there and drive it back into the tree.
1: <laughs>
0: no. Stay with me, it's a good plan. And uh, 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 they got, now we did, you know, we drove back over there, and we, we you know, we're not going to drive hard into the tree. We just eased the car back up and put the, the crease in the car back into the crease in the tree. And, uh,. uh And before cell phones and everything, I'm walking up to the house that was on the corner lot to uh, borrow the guy's phone to call the police. Because we're going to call the police, and these guys are going to corroborate my story that I had this heinous accident had been caused uh, by uh, somebody running me off the road, probably a drunken driver. (laughs) And... uh, uh, So I'm walking up to the house, and this guy comes. He he ran out the side door of his house, and he's running down toward where we are. And his eyes are big as saucers and just has great concern on his face. And and he said, are you guys okay? Is everybody okay? I said, yeah, man, we're good. And he went, what's the damnedest thing? He said, you're the second guy to hit that tree tonight. And... I said, yeah, man, you ought to cut that damn tree down. Uh, (laughs) Now, flash forward uh, uh, a a year or so, and uh, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. So now you're getting more information, right? Because I can't, I'm not staying one place too long. Now I'm in Atlanta, uh, and uh, Deborah will know exactly where this is, but I I, uh, I lived at the. well, I'll think of the name of those apartments. They were infamous in their day, down off Powers Ferry. But uh, uh, I'd gone to, I was sitting in a bar one afternoon, throwing back kamikaze shooters and taking two-and-alls. And I left there, and I, uh, uh, I got on the interstate going the wrong way. I got on I-285 going east into westbound lane. I'd been at, I'd been at uh, TGI Friday's and Daddy's Money on Roswell Road, and... Uh, uh, Anyway, I hit a car head-on, and two cars hit us, and it totaled all four cars, and it sent some people to the hospital and, and sent me to jail. And uh, uh, I came to the next morning in that jail, and I'd urinated on myself and, or vom- and vomited on myself, or you know Mike wanted me to tell this. I, I hope I did, because somebody did. and uh, 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 (Laughter) I prefer to think that's an indignity I inflicted on myself, but uh, uh, if you've been in the drunk tank, and I know some of you have, that uh, rule number one is just find a wall to get next to and stay upright if you can. Jimmy, I know you know, brother, and uh, <laughs> and man, it's, uh, but I was unsuccessful, and that's the way I found myself. But here's in all earnestness, here's the here's the facts. I'm sitting there that morning. And I had never been as afraid as I was of the consequences that awaited me personally and professionally, legally. I had never been more ashamed of what I'd done. And I didn't yet know the, the extent of the injuries of the people that were sent to the hospital. Turns out they weren't life-threatening. I did get sued over that, appropriately so, by some people who were injured. But, uh, um, and I had never been more humiliated. To be there in my own urine and my own vomit, and I had never been more certain that I'll never drink again. I'm done. I've crossed a line that even I can't live with. I'm done. And ten days later, I'm driving down the road smoking a joint, drinking a bottle of wine, thinking I nearly overreacted to that. <laughs> and that's the alcoholism I have, and I don't know that till I get to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know till I'm forced in here against my will. And you guys begin to share with me about alcoholism. And I see in our book, and all of a sudden, you gave voice to this alcoholism, this problem that I couldn't articulate. And I see in our book where it says there'll come a time that a guy like me won't be able to bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. I'll be without defense. And I was defenseless. That 10 days, what I've discovered on me, is a head-on collision going the wrong way down the interstate will buy me ten days of sobriety. That's all I can measure so far. So I drank for nine more years with a host of things happening. My wife and I got married. We met over a pile of cocaine. It was hers. (laughs) I was attracted to her. (laughs) We went to Mexico on, on, a, on a little trip, and uh, uh, I was living in New Orleans at this point. I've moved again, and uh, uh, Connie had come down from Nashville to join me there in New Orleans, and so we went on a trip to Mexico. We drank something out of a coconut. We got on a boat that took us out to what they said were international waters, and an Austrian captain read a, what he said was a wedding ceremony in Spanish, and uh, we said, I do, to, to we don't know what. And, uh... uh, uh <laughs> And there were people who thought that union might not take, you know. <laughs> and uh, next month, uh, uh, on December 31st, we'll be married 33 years. But we had some tough times. But I will tell you, we are happily married. We are gratefully married today. But we have some tough times. And, uh, uh, but I'm betraying the trust of that marriage. I didn't know what a vow meant I mean, I knew you made them. I just didn't know it was important to keep them. And that's, and that's not, that's not a laugh line. That's the truth. I didn't know. I thought this is how a man lived. You do what you do. Our daughter would be born December the 17th of 1983 in New Orleans. I was drunk. I went to the hospital. We'd been taking Lamaze classes, doing stuff, I didn't pay any attention. I was drunk. We'd go to the hospital. I wouldn't go back in the delivery room, and then I finally went. The doctor came and finally got me to go, and, uh, and and what I will tell you is that I was in a blackout. I don't remember the birth of my daughter, but even worse, for over 10 years, I made up a story about that birth. When people would get together, as they sometimes do, and talk about the I talk about the birth of their child I had built a story and I told it so often even I began to believe it. and I was sober I was sober almost 10 years before I uh before I told Connie and Abby that I, I I've been making that up uh, we uh I told you Connie got sober 10 days after I did. Uh, uh, She was out with my mother and my sister while I was in treatment, and uh, they went somewhere, and they ordered a round of drinks. And uh, then they ordered a second round of drinks. And when the second round of drinks came, uh, Connie said that the waitress was handing her her drink, and, and for reasons that she can't explain, she says, I've had enough. And she hadn't had another drink since. But it was almost four years before she came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, she, and that's her story to tell. And she talks about it. And she will tell you what a challenge that was. Polly talked about that emotional sobriety. We talk about not just getting physically sober, but, but what about that unmanageability of my life? What about that second part of the first step that really describes how am I going to live in the world without this drink? How am I going to deal with that defective character that drums up all of those feelings? And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm barely sober. And, and so we're struggling with each other and we're struggling in life. We're trying to find our way. But at least I had a place to go and I loved that. I loved AA from the get-go. And that's no virtue. Thank God I loved AA. I loved the men and women in AA that, that uh, boy, I could, I could breathe. I think somebody else said, but I could relax in an AA meeting. And I began to learn to live from inside A.A. out. I mean, when I got out of that treatment center and uh, uh, when I was still living, I'd, we'd moved back to, to Nashville, and uh, that's where I got sober. And then I, I, I went down to uh, uh, 202, the clubhouse there. You guys have uh, Oak Street, and 202 is getting ready to, to celebrate its a 52nd year. It's been around a good while as well. And... Uh, um, and I wandered upstairs, and I fell in with some people that that absolutely changed my life. Quite by accident, dumb luck, or God's grace. But there are three meetings going on at uh, at this given time, and I walked into a little room where there was a book study going on, and uh, uh, I didn't even know there was such a meeting, you know. And and those folks downstairs at what my sponsor Frank would call the half measures table, they were. Uh, they, they were kind of finger-wagging at the big book thumpers up there. I'm here to tell you, and it wasn't a term of endearment. I'm here to tell you that's not what was happening in that room. What was happening in that room is the men and women in there were looking in that book. Following are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. They were looking at those steps. They were looking at the directions. They were trying to figure out how do we take what's here and go do it. This is a nice conversation for this hour, but how do I go do it? How do I turn my will in my life over the care of God? How do I let go and let God? I told my sponsor, Frank, you know, after I'd been there a few months, I said, Frank, this let go and let God thing, that's a a cute bumper sticker. But but I don't think I'm buying in, you know. And he said, hell, Steve, just let go and let anybody. But let go. You have to let go. That surrender that we talked about earlier. This guy Frank became my sponsor, and uh, uh, Mike knows Frank well or knew Frank well. He uh, he passed away in 2008 after being my sponsor for 18 years, and uh, I was in the room with him and his wife and his daughters and uh, uh, four other men that he sponsored. And uh, uh, at 4.04 in the afternoon on January the 15th uh, 2008, I was kissing him on the forehead when he took his last breath. i have been talking to Frank. We'd been throwing dirt on him for about six years. We thought he was dead every time he sneezed. And uh, 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 his health had been bad. So I'd be talking to him. I'd say, Frank, you know, what are going to do, man? What, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when you're gone? He said, Steve oh, it's your turn. And what I would say to each of you is, it's your turn. It's our turn. All of us. All of us have those people in our lives when we showed up who, who, you know that person when you're sitting in the meeting and they walk in and you just feel better about life, you feel more comfortable. Man, I'm glad he or she came today. And for that hour you feel like things are going to be okay because he or she is there. Are we willing to be that person for somebody else? It's our turn. It's my turn. It's your turn. It's your turn if you're six months sober. It's your turn if you're in this room. I've got a keychain that says everybody can help. Everybody needs help. And two clasping hands. And what I love about it is the two hands. They don't know who's giving and who's getting. Everybody in here needs help. And everybody in here can help. Our opportunity is to be open to that and reach out to each other. Be present. Anyway, I, uh, uh, Frank began, uh, a few things happened. I'm going I'm to fast forward through a few things. But I, I was six months sober, loving AA, as I said. But I didn't realize I was sitting in a meeting one day, one of the other meetings there at 202, a Saturday lunch meeting, and uh, I heard something I had not heard before. I realized people were actually starting to talk to each other between meetings. <laughs> I didn't realize that that people are having these relationships outside of the hour. And somebody said, we're all going to Shoney's uh, for lunch. After the meeting, who wants to go? And I desperately wanted to go. I desperately wanted to go, so when the meeting was over, I got in my car and I started over there, but I, I turned off and went home. And the next week I turned off and went home, and the next week I turned off and went home each Saturday hoping I would go. And the reason I wouldn't go is because I was unwilling to have that awkward moment. I was, un- I was too self... I had th- this self-consciousness that had a fear that I was going to walk into Shoney's and there were going to be six people sitting at a table for six. And I didn't know whether I'm supposed to pull up a seventh chair. I didn't know whether they really meant me. I didn't know whether I'm supposed to inconvenience them. And I'm unwilling. I'm too self-obsessed have too much self-centered fear to risk it, so I go home. I said, what I really needed, all I needed was after the meeting about three guys to come over to me and go, Steve, we've been talking, we really want you to go to lunch with us. <laughs> We're just arguing over who gets to sit with you. And uh, uh, Then I would have been fine, but I need, I need, you, to, I need you to go first. If you're here tonight and somebody says we're going to eat, they mean you. Please come. Pull up the chair. Make us scoot over. We want to scoot over. You probably talk about ten people at a table for six. That's how we're wired. Let's do it. Come with us. At a year sober, I moved to Richmond, Virginia. And uh, was over there for six years. And I got a sponsor while I was there at Frank's uh, insistence that I get somebody. He says, because, Steve, you'll go over there, and you'll, you'll become a back row member. You'll become an outlier. And I'm because I'm still that guy, right, that won't go to Shonies. And uh, I got a sponsor over there named Joe S., Joe Sullivan. And Joe brought a different sensibility to my sobriety. He, he and Frank were quite different physically and, and uh, uh, personality-wise, and Joe helped me begin to see how to live this program day by day out in, out in the world. I'd been at a meeting one night. I'd spoken at great length, spoken almost as long as I've talked tonight, and it was not a speaker meeting.
1: <laughs> and, uh, uh,
0: and Joe had been there. I called Joe when I got home. Joe had been at the meeting, and, and now I'm concerned about it, and I, and I called Joe, and I said, Joe, did I sound self-righteous in that meeting? And he went, oh, Steve, you're still asking all the wrong questions. Because the question isn't isn't, did you sound self-righteous. The question is were you self-righteous? But the truth is, Steve, you don't care if you were self-righteous or not. You're afraid they caught you. (laughs) You're afraid they think you're self-righteous. Again, what I think you think. He said, if you, if you were self-righteous, try not to do it again. If you weren't, don't worry about it. At 15 years sober, my brother and I bought a, uh, uh, a building that we were moving our, our little family business into. I mean, it, 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 it wasn't a high rise or anything, just a little building. We're, we're buying some uh, office equipment and furniture for this building. And, and we started talking. We said, this would be a great time to buy some furniture for our, uh, uh, for our homes while we're doing this and bill it through our business and get the tax advantages that come with that. I mean, I'm just 15 years sober. I wasn't even conflicted. And uh, 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 I was talking with Joe about it, uh, uh, really just kind of talking about what's going on conversationally. I wasn't looking for feedback. And...
1: uh, (laughs)
0: And Joe said, he said, you know, Steve, I don't think I would do that. And he really wasn't telling me not to do it. He said, I don't think I would do that. And I said, well, Joe, I said, I know it sounds a little bit like tax fraud. And, uh, uh, and this is sponsorship. You know, he went, no, Steve, it actually is tax fraud. It's fraudulent. You're saying you're doing one thing when you're doing another. He said, "Now that's okay. He says, do what you're going to do. He says, I'm not going to quit loving you. We're not going to kick you out of the club. He says, we don't quit making mistakes when we get to AA, he says, but we quit kidding ourselves about the mistakes we make. He says, do what you're going to do, but don't kid yourself about what you're doing. So uh, so I I didn't do it, you know, that time. And uh, 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 I moved back to Nashville, Connie and I did. Polly talked about some of those financial things, and I mentioned that we'd gone through some stuff. Uh, uh, now this was, was building to a crescendo, and, and, uh, and the financial problems were ratcheting up in our home, and when the financial problems ratchet up, the pressure ratchets up. And, uh, uh, and, and we were scared, and she was angry. She was mad at me. The mistakes were mostly mine and mostly sober. She was mad at me, and I was mad at her for being mad at me. And we were having arguments. We had an argument you can't pretend you didn't have. Um, one of the things Joe had said to me uh, back over there in Richmond was uh, uh, when we had talked about old ideas. And he said, Steve, one of the old ideas you've got to let go of is the idea that you think you know what just happened. He says, because you, th- you, you want to label something right, wrong, good, bad, should or should have he said you really just know how it feels but given time and perspective it's going to look like something else and we're going through this and we have a fight that we can't pretend we didn't have we said stuff you can't pretend you didn't say and and we were at the precipice one more time of uh, potentially splitting up Uh, we said this is too hard we either got to find a way to do it together or do it apart and uh and we got in that marriage in a way that we hadn't... I got in it in a way that I had not been. I was all in in a way that I had not been and didn't know that I had not been. And I will tell you, it totally redefined my relationship with my wife, which had not been bad at that point, but, but it changed it tenfold for me. It made us partners, true partners, in a way that we hadn't been. And we did go bankrupt, and... uh, uh uh, but we did it together. I, they, they foreclosed on our home. They came and got our cars. You know, they pulled a flatbed truck up, and they, they loaded our cars up and drove them off. And I called Frank. We were back there in Nashville. I said, Frank, man, they, they took our cars. He went, no, Steve. They took their cars. Uh, uh, <laughs> just to be clear, they took the cars you're not paying for. I want to fast forward to a couple of things and end on time, and and, uh, you guys have been so patient and listened to all of us who are speaking this weekend so attentively and at great length. Uh, I just want to think of the two or three points I want to make on the way out. And and, uh, one is is that I've discovered over time, and it is kind of what I was talking about today and I think a lot of what Polly was talking about in the workshop, that that when I set this drinking problem aside, now I'm dealing with this emotional sobriety. I, what I, what I want is peace of mind. What I want to find a way to live comfortably in my skin and in this world. What I want a connection with you and a connection with a higher power. And I don't know why I can't make that connection. I don't know what's between me and you. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, what I, what I recognize, and Polly talked about, as Bill had talked about in that emotional sobriety, was these faulty dependencies. And she mentioned 6 and 7, and that's what 6 and 7 talks about in the 12 and 12, these, these dependencies. Our book says that I will see, I will discover that I have been making unreasonable demands on you, on me, and on God. If you're keeping score, there's nobody else to be unreasonably demanding of. I want to, I, you can't satisfy me, I can't satisfy me, and God can't satisfy me. I got nowhere to turn. So Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about having my demands met. It's about limiting my demands. It's about being freer and freer of my demands. It's about being more and more okay right now under this set of circumstances. We do that through the process of the steps where I become freer of the bondage of self. That third step prayer, I read it wrong for years, I think. My interpretation has changed slightly. Because I used to look at that and it said, relieve me of the bondage of self. And the mental picture was self holding me, uh, was was me being in, in bondage. The truth is, self is the hostage taker. I'm in bondage to self. I want to be free of self. My pride and my ego are my problem. My pride and my ego come dressed as my friends and they're like the government. They say, we're here to help. But they don't help. It looks like, but it looks like they're going to help. They look like they're going to protect me, but they're the very thing that are keeping me from that real relationship with you and God that I want. I went a number of years ago. If you've been waiting for your Zen moment this evening, this is it. This is my Zen story. Uh, if I'd have told it earlier, you could have left and. Uh, uh, I went to a conference in uh, uh, Toronto a few years ago. A friend of mine, Butch, had me up, and and, uh, we broke for lunch. And there were about ten of us at the lunch table, and they came and took our order. And uh, I ordered a cheeseburger, and the guy next to me ordered a club sandwich. Went on around, and a little while later they brought our food. And they gave me a cheeseburger, and they gave the guy next to me a cheeseburger. And he starts eating his cheeseburger, and I said, Man, I thought you ordered a club sandwich. And here's what he said I did, but they brought me a cheeseburger. (laughs) I said, Brother, you don't have to live like that. We're going to get you a club sandwich. And I start calling. I'm, I'm trying to get him over, you know, because cause we can right this horrible wrong. And he said, no, Steve, I'm good, man. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm good. And he wouldn't understand. He wasn't just saying, I'll eat the damned old cheeseburger because that's what life gave me. He was perfectly content with the cheeseburger. Now, it would have been perfectly okay for him to have said, you know what? I ordered a club sandwich. Would you guys get me one? And they would have, and that would have been fine. But wasn't his life easier and more comfortable because he was okay with the cheeseburger? And I will tell you that I go through life ordering a club sandwich and getting a cheeseburger and it ain't okay. (laughs) And I spend more time than I want to admit Disappointed that the world has not gotten my order right. (laughs) Making unreasonable demands upon you, upon me, and upon God. But see, what I want is to be freer of that. What I want is to be able to live in this world freely. What I want to be able to do is be me. Can you imagine a greater freedom for a guy who spent all of his life acting? When the big book says that the alcoholic more than most is an actor. He wears two faces. It's his stage character that he wants his fellows to see. He wants to be a man of certain reputation, but in his heart he knows he doesn't deserve it. So going through life feeling fraudulent, going through life feeling like a phony, going through life trying to figure out what what I need to give you for you to tell me I'm okay. And even when getting that recognition, it falls empty because I know you're responding to the fraud. Standing in front of a door, getting ready to go into a social event or a work event or sometimes even a family event and steel myself up to go in and act like I'm okay, to act like I got it together, and then to leave and close that door on the way out and feel empty. Connie and I went to, went to see a, a marriage counselor. We were, we were just about gone. and, and Anyway, I'll shorten this story, but, but, but I'm seeing the woman by myself a couple of times, and she's seeing us together. I'm I'm four years sober in AA. You guys are telling me I'm doing good. I didn't know you graded on such a lenient curve. And and I'm talking, I'm prattling on in front of this therapist, and she just stopped me. And she said, Steve, you must really be lonely. You must really be lonely. And the moment she said it, I knew it was true, and I didn't know it the moment before. I wouldn't have called it that. That loneliness was that sense of isolation from you, not lack of proximity to you, but being right in the middle of you and feeling alone, feeling different, feeling disconnected. That's, you think I'm done. Uh. Mm. Here's what has changed for me in AA. Here's the, here's the short version in how I really do end. There's a poem that a a guy named Moe in Nashville used to always recite uh, uh, in his talks, and I first heard it over 18 years ago, and the first time I heard Moe say it, I knew that this poem uh, expressed exactly what my experience has been in Alcoholics Anonymous. And in 2003, uh, Moe became ill with cancer, and uh, 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 his time was pretty short. My friend Jerry and I went to breakfast with him one morning, And I said, Mo, would you mind if when I end my talks, uh, uh, I end with with, uh, that poem because it has meant so much to me. And it will help me honor you, but in the truest sense of Alcoholics Anonymous, it will help me pass on uh, uh, what you have passed on to me and so many others. And he said, uh, he said, oh, Steve, if you think it will help another drunk. And he was maybe the best AA member I ever met, and I know that he loved alcoholics more than anybody I ever met. And one of the things that happens here in AA, certainly has happened to me from time to time, is I love Alcoholics Anonymous, but I begin to not like alcoholics too much. <laughs> like Polly said, they're inconvenient when they come in drinking and making noise. they drinking my coffee. Hell, I came in, went to my home group, and there was one sitting in my seat. <laughs> You know, if I've got a reserve seat here, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> so most said, if you think it'll help another drum. And from that day till this, it has every time I have said it because it, it, it absolutely expresses what has happened for me here. It says, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul. My soul eluded me. I sought my fellow man and found all three. See, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you guys invite me here to share myself with you. You spend the weekend sharing yourself with me. What happens in that process is a power shows up that I can't define or comprehend and works in my life in a way that is indescribably wonderful and introduces me to a life that is happily and usefully whole. If it's whole, it means nothing is missing. Today's the day. Now's the time. We're connected. Thank you.